Welcome to Emerging Franchise Brands, the podcast that introduces you to the visionary founders of America's fastest growing franchise opportunities. We'll also hear from industry pros as they share insights on what it really takes to achieve the elusive milestone of 100 plus locations. I am your host, Frank Fumi, founder of i9 Sports, and my 20-year journey from inception to acquisition has given me a unique perspective on how to succeed in franchising. Join me as we welcome today's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Emerging Franchise Brands podcast. On today's show, I have two very special guests. I have Omar Solomon and Nick Friedman from College Hunks, Hauling Junk and Moving. Guys, how are you? Doing great. Awesome. Thanks for having us. It is great to have you guys. We go way back, starting here in the Tampa Bay area. And with our with our companies, and um, I, I'm excited to uh, to get together here with you guys. Awesome. Yep, I remember from the early days reaching out to you, being like, "What are we doing?" <laughs> exactly. I was probably asking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> what, what year did you guys start franchising? We started franchising in 2008. 08, Yeah. 08, 09. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. That's right, Omar. Uh, you and I got together. We met in like it was Arizona or something. Arizona at a franchising conference, probably 2010, and I, we were sitting next to each other. I was asking you a bunch of questions and taking notes, and I think I still have the notes somewhere. <laughs> How many FBCs do we need per, per oh franchise my. and all that? Oh, my gosh. Well, guys, I, I think what I need to do is, before we go any further, I would love to just share with the audience a little bit about you guys, your illustrious career, because you guys have done some incredible, incredible things with your with your business and I want the audience to know not just the accolades, but hear how everything started. But um, just I'm going to give it real brief. So uh, Nick and Omar have created this huge brand. They're best-selling authors. They've co-produced. Uh, Nick's co-produced a, an award-winning Netflix documentary and acted. And they've been in television programs. They've been on Shark Tank. They've been uh, Nick's been on uh, Undercover Boss, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you guys have done in- incredible work. How many franchises you guys have now? We're up to just over 200 franchise owners across the U.S. and uh, probably comprise about 400 territories. Oh, wow. Wow. That's incredible. So I, I want to go back to the beginning, though. H- how did you guys meet? We met in high school in 10th grade. <laughs> Detention. Um, and we we're just kind of troublemakers back then and uh, became best friends and then kept in touch and and becoming business partners. Okay. But you got to connect the dots. So how did this whole <laughs> thing happen? You guys were in high school. How did the whole business partnership come to be and the whole idea? Yes. Yeah, so summer before our senior year of college, uh, we went to university opposite sides of the country. He was at Pomona College in California, and I was at University of Miami down in South Florida. Uh, and we would link back up during summer break. My mom had this beat up cargo van uh, that she would use for deliveries at her furniture store and basically offered the van to do odd jobs around the neighborhood. And I invite my buddies over, Nick and a couple other friends were sitting around the dinner table and came up with this harebrained idea of hauling junk. And we said, all we need is a name. And, you know, after about two Bud Lights, the name started to get a little bit more creative. And my mom uh, looked at us and she was like, you know, you guys are like the college hunks who haul junk. Looked at each other like, that's a that's great it. name. You can feel the earth move and <laughs> put some flyers around the neighborhood that said, college hunks will haul your junk. Mm-hmm. Um, six o'clock that night, cell phone rang and we were in business. And that's what we did. And wake up five in the morning, work till eight, nine o'clock at night. Uh, it was the first time in our life that we found something that we were passionate about. Not that we were necessarily passionate about hauling junk, but being a small business owner, you know, that opened up our eyes that there was this whole other world outside of school grades getting a job it's like you can run a business you can do marketing and talk to clients and every day's a little bit different and so that just got us super jazzed up about entrepreneurship well nick what'd you think of this whole idea from the get-go i was all in i remember omar we both went back to school for our senior year of college and omar called me up and said hey i'm writing a business plan for college hunks hauling junk i'm gonna put it into an entrepreneurship competition and i was like you're gonna win (laughs) and uh, it won first prize out of about 150 entries uh we graduated actually got regular jobs for a very brief period of time and i remember emailing omar you know hey what's our timeline for starting this business he emailed me all capital letters my timelines right now exclamation point let's do this so you know, we got some skeptical looks from people when we said we were 
going to quit our jobs after college to haul junk and move furniture full time. You know, they were like, you're going to quit your jobs to do what? Haul junk. And it's going to be called what? College hunks. You you know, are you throwing away your degree to start a trash business? Is that really a good idea? And, you know, back at that, in those days, shows like Shark Tank and the notion of starting a business weren't as commonplace. They were seen as very risky and, and uh, dangerous to, to try to, you know, pursue because, you know, the odds were against startups. And so we wanted to try to defy those odds. And we always tell the story when we first started, we were, we would be doing all the work ourselves. So we would be driving the trucks, answer the phone, hauling the junk. And we went out and obtained a 800 number, but it was still routed to our cell phone. So we put the 800 number on the back of the truck and people would call to complain about driving. One of us would be in the driver's seat answering the phone saying, <laughs> you know, we'll fire those guys when they get back to the office. Thanks for reporting that to us. So, you know, probably as Omar mentioned, did every job, you know, in the business from, from the very beginning. So Nick, just a point of reference, like what, what year is this about? So 03 was the cargo van summer. 04 <laughs> was the business plan competition. 05 was when we officially declared ourselves in business full time. Uh, so 2005 up in Washington, DC, uh, we had one truck, we would park it at our parents, one of our parents' houses. And, uh, I think we were still living at our respective parents' houses at the time as well. <laughs> so where does franchising come into the whole play here? So franchising came into play when it was always in the business plan, um, how to do it, where to do it, why to do it unknown. But I had a buddy <laughs> that went to University of Miami with me. Uh, He was in the business school. And as he was watching the business unfold in DC, he said, hey, if you ever open a franchise, I'll open one in Orlando. And so we're like, hey, we got one one open. Um, (laughs) So let's hurry up and get all the documents and legal stuff done so we can start opening and selling franchises. And that's that's what we did. I think uh, 08, 09 is when we declared ourselves open for franchising and way too early, didn't have all probably the systems and uh, people that we needed, but uh, opened that first one in Orlando and just kind of grew very slow between 2008 to probably 2015. And then 2015 is when we really hit a tipping point. Sure. And like so many of us, we didn't know anything about franchising, mm -hmm. right? When we started out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other thing that I remember from those early days when we were doing all the work ourselves, we started to burn out a little bit. And so we had this vision of being a national brand, Mm -hmm. but we just didn't have the knowledge of how to do it. And one of our mentors recommended to us a book called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, kind of the, you know, the franchisee, franchisor, entrepreneur handbook. And we read it and it was like a light bulb went off for us because it felt like it was written about us. It was talking about how to work on the business, not in it creating systems and processes for your business to scale to the next level. And uh, so when we read that, it kind of validated, I think, Omar's early idea and indication of wanting to become a franchise. Uh, As Omar mentioned, we really didn't know what to do. So we went to some International Franchise Association conferences. We met some franchisors, but I think we, and some consulting groups as well. But I think we always had this perhaps naive, maybe glamorized view of how easy it was going to be. We didn't recognize, you know, how many wounds and, and, and how long the cavern was going to be to have to cross to be able to get to the point where we are today. Uh, but that learning curve was very steep. But we, once we dove in, there was like no turning back. No, there is no turning back. You don't have, you don't have no choice. Yeah. I mean, just like Nick said, it was, uh, jumping off the, off the airplane and, right figuring out the parachute on the way down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the book, The E-Myth, I remember he mentioned it to me and I'm reading it after a day of hauling junk and I was covered in mud and I'm like, oh man, this is, <laughs> this is really about us. And that, um, that whole idea of working on the business, creating the systems, I think it plays perfectly to franchising. Right. And not to mention, you started franchising right during the start of the recession. That's yeah, good point. If, if you were going to yeah. pick a time to first fran- time. franchise a home services business of, of, of anything, you know, the start of the housing downturn probably wasn't the best time to do it. But as we reflect back, it probably was the best thing that could have happened to us because it forced us to become resilient, gritty, persevere, persistent, like basically all the things you hear about are intangibles in entrepreneurship. We had no choice. We felt like we were dragging an anchor through the sand. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when we first started the business, all you had to do was park the truck out with a, you know, a a sign in front of it and the phone started ringing. Uh, But then once the housing market shifted, we had to get a lot more resourceful and strategic with how we made the phone ring. All right. So we're starting out with franchising. And how did you get besides your Orlando franchisee? How did you find your first 10 or so? I mean, that's the probably the number one, number two question I get from, you know, emerging franchisors. Certainly some PR. 
Uh, mm-hmm. PR was a big one for us. Um, we were on the very first episode of the very first season of Shark Tank that in was big. 2009. So right. that kind of helped put our brand <laughs> on the map. Uh, PR was a little bit more effective back then than it is now because back then there wasn't the social media and just you know getting bombarded with so many different messages content. and content mm-hmm. as there is today. But uh, brokers, brokers, yeah, word of mouth. Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. There wasn't one specific website thing. portal, franchise yeah. portals. So you get one or two from PR, one or two from some pay-per-click advertising or one from a broker and just very linear growth. I think we were opening six to eight a year for six years. And then <laughs> one year was like 40. So it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a breakthrough. You know, you push against the wall long enough. Eventually you're going to, you know, stop pushing or the wall is going to move. And right. finally the wall started moving and that momentum I think it was real. And uh, funny story about that first franchisee, though, that, that Omar went to college with, is he didn't have the cash at the time to buy the franchise. And so he traded us land in Central Florida that we had no use for. Still, we have no <laughs> use for to this day. Yeah, if you want some land, we got you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's appreciated in value, uh, you know, since 20 years, 15 years ago or whatever. But uh, that was, you know, in those early days of franchising, it was like we needed to sell franchises. So yeah. we needed to get them awarded as as best we could right well since there's so many folks that listen that are emerging franchisors and they heard that little story here how you got your first 10 they're like yeah but things are different now right they might say so if you guys were to start a brand new concept knowing what you know today and times have changed how do you think you'd sell your first 10 to 12 networking probably influencers yeah i think the influence social media it's easier said than done but i mean i see these guys and gals on Instagram that are top five businesses that uh, withstand a recession or, you know, these businesses never go bankrupt. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of content around that and TikTok, I guess. Um, but I guess that's also easier said than done because if it was that easy, we'd be doing it also. So it's tough. It's a different, it's a different time. When we started, you would put an ad in the yellow pages because mm-hmm. we started 05. Facebook started, I think, 04. Mm. So social media was just starting. Uh, Google pay-per-click and uh, search engine marketing was just starting. Social media was very, very new. So the PR, the blocking and tackling, like the brokers, that all really worked. Uh, now it's a very crowded oh, yeah. marketplace. Yeah. A lot. Of t- yeah. Also, honestly, if, if we were to start something for, uh, fresh, I would think, tapping into your customer base because your customer base is going to be a fan of the service or the brand. And, you know, whereas ours may not work because we were territory based, but if it were a retail concept or something like that, you know, they might have a friend or a cousin or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an uncle or whatever that it's in another market that might want to kind of carry the torch of being the first franchise. But those early days of franchising were the, were probably the most difficult. I, I, I equate it to, Probably more difficult than having kids, to be honest with you. And I've got four kids, and every one of those is, you know, sleepless nights. But uh, when you're starting a franchise, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. What would you guys say was one of the biggest challenges you had when you were starting out, and what did you learn from it? For me, it would be just kind of fighting through the housing market downturn. That It was uh, the timeline of how long it took to scale the franchise system, how, how many franchises we really had to have uh, to have it be at scale mm-hmm. was probably the most uh, tra- challenging thing and not being able to afford the, uh, the resources, the people, the personnel, the se- the software systems that we're going to be able to, you know, help elevate the company uh, faster. Uh, so it was a very kind of slow growth grind. And then in those early days as a franchisor, you know, we were way more dependent on each and every franchise owner. And so there's a little bit of a leverage challenge there, you know, franchise owner gets big and kind of thinks he or she knows more than the brand uh, or more than the founders. And so there's, there's some, some friction there that was a little bit challenging. Sure. That, I, that makes perfect sense to me. Omar, what, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I would agree with all of that. I would say we were always chasing growth. You know, the brand was always a little bit bigger mm-hmm. than the, than the stake behind it. What do you mean by that? That, you know, we had an icon, the brand was from our very first truck. People were like, are you guys a franchise? I see you everywhere. And the brand was always bigger than, I think, the business. Okay. Um, and so we were always trying to, we had to put the systems in place. We didn't have the revenue model, the business model, the training systems. We couldn't afford the people at the time that could put those 
systems in place. So we were always a little bit behind the eight ball. Um, and then it, you know, sort of comes together, call it 2015, where all of a sudden we had the system and the, and, and the sizzle, we had the brand and the meat behind it, um, that proved it. And that's where, you know, the unit economics of the franchisees come right. into play. Successful franchisees is going to be what sells more franchisees. Mm-hmm. Did you guys bootstrap the company yourself starting out? Yeah. We did, yeah. We, yeah. The only outside capital was really just for the vehicle loans and you know some real estate when we bought our first bought our first office, uh, you know, a few years into the business. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I did the same thing, and I have no regrets though. I think starting out now, if we were starting a brand, could we do what no. we all did in the two no. thousands? I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't <laughs> want to. I, I, I'm glad I did it. It taught us how to run a business, how to do it frugally, how to manage a budget, how to kind of play money ball. Uh, but I don't think I could do that twice. I think it's something <laughs> that you do once, you prove yourself, and then you go raise capital if you do it a second time. Um, because this hair loss and man, I know all that feeling. stuff. That's yeah, a bootstrap business. You know, it's real. you know what book I wish we had read in the early days is uh, Shelly Sun's book mm-hmm. uh, from Bryce Sarkare. It's called Grow Smart, Risk Less. And because she started around the time we did, but obviously it was a rocket ship of a, of a success story. Uh, but her book really kind of lays out the blueprint of what a franchisor looks like at sort of each stage, at, you know, getting your first franchises, how many franchises you need. And then obviously, you know, your book is, is, is very relevant as well that we, that didn't exist back then. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, those would have been very helpful. Uh, some very franchise specific uh, best practices. Yeah. We, we didn't really have a lot of those resources when we, we were starting. We out. didn't have podcasts like this right. either. I mean, yeah. it was, uh, it was the IFA. I mean, the IFA to its credit had a lot of good resources, but it was sure. still kind of uh, figuring it out on your own type of thing. Plus, I don't know about you, but I didn't feel like when I would go to an IFA event that I really fit in because I would go to these conferences and I'm among the big boys. Yeah, you got mm-hmm. McDonald's and then... Yeah, and then it's like us. us. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> how do we get there? Other, how, right, how, what do we need to do? And they were obviously able to afford, you know, a management team that mm-hmm. we couldn't afford. We were definitely not royalty sufficient. Mm-hmm. And it was all about, like, how do I keep the lights on? It was about how do I sell more franchises? And how do I build the systems at the same time? I mean, it was it was all what you mentioned earlier, Nick, about the E-Myth Revisited. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all about how do I build the systems and processes while I try to keep things going. Yeah. And I'll say two things that were, I would say, critical building blocks for us was, number one, where we made the conscious sort of intentional decision to become purpose-driven and values-based. And I know it's kind of cliche to talk about your core values and being a purpose-driven organization, but we had gone to enough conferences and read enough books to realize that companies and organizations that withstand the test of time are ones that are not not just chasing money or economics, but they're chasing an impact. And Mm -hmm. so we, we created our company purpose, our core values, and set those in place. And I think that started attracting a lot of passion and energy of, of franchise owners and team members. And then a few years into that, we realized that we were actually missing a key ingredient of accountability, performance-based accountability, because we started saying, well, without margin, there's no mission. So we have to be able to perform and hold people accountable to the results. And we've got to have a vibrant, welcoming company culture. And I think those two sort of levers pulled simultaneously is what fueled the momentum mm. to, to what we are today. I, I think that that makes perfect sense to me. And I do see your brand as a brand with great passion behind it. There is a lot of meaning. There is, there is a lot of, um, uh, how do I put it? It just, there is, there's a lot of energy mm-hmm. with the people that are part of your team, whether I see it on social media or, you know, at a franchise conference. And that's obviously, you know, indicative of on how you guys have built this company. It has to be, it's, it's, it's a hard job. It's, it's, you know, moving, death, divorce, those are the most stressful things in someone's life. And we're going into people's homes that are going through one of the most stressful things in their lives. We, we're doing a job that you wouldn't do for your best friend. Right, <laughs> so, right, even for pizza and beer. <laughs> right, even for pizza and beer. So it's, you know, a little bit of organized chaos. Um, and the way I describe it is, and it's probably similar for many franchises, is like tech companies are run a certain way, but our types of businesses are run like, in my opinion, a football team. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you've got the head coaches, you've got the uh, linebacker coach, the defensive coordinator. We've got the headsets on. Our job is to motivate the team. Our job is to recruit the team members. Our job is to follow the system and run the playbook and get the people on the bus and get the wrong people off the bus. So it's like very much a sports 
uh, mentality. Whereas, you know, if you're a fintech company, you know, you can mm -hmm. have eight people in a room programming. It's not, it's not the same. It's very people dependent. Um, in order to get people on the team to really buy in, they have to have that higher purpose. Yeah, I, I think that that is spot on, especially when you talk about the team members, because I don't know about you guys, but did do you feel like you were, I don't want to say the quality, because we, we've all had really terrific people that have worked for us. How has the staffing evolved from the time you started out and you were hiring to a few years back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, uh, the dynamics of the team evolve and the personnel evolves as the business grows. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that is a core value in our organization is building leaders. And so the idea is that we want to always be getting better, Omar and I, as the founders, but we also want to make sure that everybody else in the organization has that same level of focus on improving themselves. But we also want to be realistic that that doesn't mean everybody gets promoted as the business grows because, you know, for somebody to move from the minor leagues in baseball to the major leagues in baseball, you got to be the very best player at the minor league level and there's got to be an opening at the major league level. Mm -hmm. And so we make that analogy very clear and transparent that not everybody's going to move up to be the major league right. executive. Uh, some people might hit a ceiling and that's okay. And we, maybe they're happy in remaining in the seat or maybe they graduate to go do something else. And so uh, over time, we've had team members continue to evolve and and grow with the organization. Our, our current brand president started out as our financial controller. And even before that, he was a undergraduate college student doing a case study uh, about our company uh, before he joined the organization. Uh, and then we've got, you know, guys on the truck who have gone on to own franchises, but not everybody can make that leap. And so right. uh, there are people that started off with the organization that either loved it so much they wanted to go own their own franchise or they moved on to go do other things as the business evolved and, and grew. Business, just like sports, is about beating the odds. It takes for every 100 applicants, one becomes a truck captain. For every 100 truck captains, one might become an ops manager. For every 100 of those, maybe one will become a franchise partner. So um, it's it's all about beating the odds. And the, the early days, it's you know it's like peewee soccer, right? Where Nick and I are chasing the ball around. Everybody's running with Everyone's us. Everyone's running with exactly. us. And then you kind of evolve to high school sports. We got our plays, you know, and then all of a sudden, I'd like to consider we're like you know, Alabama football or – um, I guess the New England Patriots aren't aren't uh, the what team they used anymore. To be. What they used to be, right, but um, right. uh, you know, you got Nick Saban, and you've got the system, and you've got the brand, and you've got the coaching staff, the coaching tree, and mm -hmm. and all of that. Yeah, I think that you know the analogy that Omar just described is spot on. Is you know in the in the early days it was it was kind of managed chaos, and and over time it professionalizes, and the identity and the culture remains the same, but the the professionalism and the structure and the discipline uh, continues to elevate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the only way if the business is going up in a, you know, in a, you know, upward direction, the people have to be moving at the same trajectory. Uh, otherwise they're going to be pulling the business downwards and, and, and you can't have that. And no, and, and how difficult was that to make some of those decisions and changes? Did you go through a period of time where your team leadership, not even leadership, but the, the, the bench, had to well, evolve. It's both because it, there's that, but then you also go and try to hire the high high paid coach, right? That you think mm -hmm. is going to be able to come in and put the plays together, and that doesn't work either. <laughs> so it's it's both. It's managing like oh, you can't just buy your way out right. of it, and you can't just promote your way to it. So it's finding that medium, and that's where the I think as founders or visionaries, you have to be extremely diligent about who you let onto the team, and then if they're not the right person moving them off. Yeah. And, but I think, I, you know, probably the hardest part, Frank, is when you have to part ways with somebody that just passionately cares about the organization, but the organization has outgrown them or the mm -hmm. seat has outgrown them. And we try to be very direct and candid because it's not doing them or the organization any favors by trying to keep them in a seat that they're no longer able to thrive in. And so we try to have very objective, uh, candid conversations that are come from a point of point of compassion. One of the things we like to say is, you know, we're cold on the numbers, you know, numbers are black and white, but we still want to be warm on people and compassionate about our people and, and, you know, help them be in the best position to win, which may in some cases be no longer on this team if the team has outgrown them. So yeah. the people decisions are probably the hardest mm -hmm. part of any organization. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you look at the professional sports teams, 
they're wrong 50% of the time with their draft <laughs> picks and they can watch the per- person play on the field and have all their stats and do all these personality profiles on top of it. And we're having to go off of a resume, an interview, a reference check. And we've, you know, brought in some other tools like predictive index and things of that nature as well to help us, you know, identify the right fits. Yeah. And to your point, Omar, you can't buy your way in because <laughs> we've seen some of the, some of the highest payroll, for example, in major league baseball and those teams mm-hmm. are, didn't even make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. it's players, it's coaching, it's, it's so fit, much culture fit. But okay, when did you know? Because you guys were growing kind of slowly at, at first. When did you know? Like I can start. We can start scaling this thing quicker. Like we can start turning it up. We've got, we've got the things in place. Mm-hmm. Was there was there some sort of tipping point for you to realize that? I, I think it was the point where we brought franchise development in house uh, mm. because actually we hadn't mentioned that yet. But when we first started, we were outsourcing our friend dev. So we had a broker, uh, you know, not an independent broker that was commission only. And then okay. we had a third party kind of development organization that was helping, helping us sell the franchises. But we were getting to a point where that third party development organization wasn't sort of ingrained in our culture and our day to day. They didn't, they didn't really know our franchise owners. They didn't really know, you know, our support team. And so they were sort of selling, I guess the sizzle as Omar called it. And then once we were able to bring it in house, there was a little bit of a lull, but then I think it just kind of, it, it slingshotted upwards uh, because we kind of had all the, all the, pieces of the puzzle marching in the same direction. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think it was that. I think also the unit economics. Mm-hmm. So the combination of those two things, having profitable franchisees mm-hmm. and then having the development team that could then blow it out of the water. And that's when those two things came together. That's when the tipping point happened. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, franchise development, do you guys still have in-house Frandev? We do. All right. So you're starting a franchise tomorrow, just knowing what you know, you're bootstrapping it, Maybe you have five, six franchises. Do you do Fran Dev in-house? Do you use an FSO? What do you do? I think if we're bootstrapping it, I would probably use an FSO, yeah. okay. a franchise sales organization, mm-hmm. because you're paying on a commission basis. You're, you know, on aggregate, you're going to overpay, but it's okay because they're helping you fill the, the boat with, with qualified franchise owners, hopefully. And then if you can get to a point where then you can then afford bringing it in-house. But if, if you were trying to bring it in-house from the beginning and then if it fails – that's going to be a costly mistake. Mm-hmm. But if you had investors and you cash wasn't an issue, you would prefer in-house brand dev, you think? If you I think so. If you've got the right people, the right culture, and, okay. and the right leadership, and as Omar said, the right unit economics. What do you this think? This is where you need the FSO sponsor just to <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, rep them right here. Right. What do you think? I agree. Yeah, I think if I was bootstrapping the FSO for sure because it's mm-hmm. low risk, yes, you're going to overpay. Um, but if you can truly, money wasn't an option and you could really do what you wanted, then yeah. sure, you'd want to have an in-house team that's all in on your culture and, yeah. and your mm-hmm. system. But I think that in the early days of franchise sales, it really does boil down to the culture and to some degree, the sizzle of, of what it is that you have to offer. You know, we had a catchy name, bright colors, good PR, uh, purpose-driven values-based organization. People wanted to be a part of that. And then- the rocket fuel, as Omar mentioned, is when our franchise owners started really making real money, you know, buying vacation homes, putting their kids through college, buying that, you know, luxury car and pr- prospects wanted to be a part of that. So mm-hmm. it was a combination of, OK, that's a great organization, great culture, and I can make a pretty amazing living doing that. That's a that's a recipe for for rapid growth. What about on the broker side? Uh, when we were when we were all starting out in the 2000s, it was it was easy for brokers to want to work with us. <laughs> Now, because of all the brands that are that are out there, it's harder for a startup. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember when we first started trying to get into the broker networks, we almost went broke <laughs> paying <laughs> right. to be part of their conferences and then paying to be part of their network and then paying to try to attract their attention by buying the steak dinners or sending them gifts and all this sort of and, and it took quite a while for us to get any of their attention. Um, if I were an early stage franchisor, I don't, I, I don't think that you could afford that because the brokers are going to go where the deals are, you know, path of least resistance. They're going to go where they know deal is flow is getting done either because they've gotten them done before because their peers are getting them done and they don't want to also show something that's brand new if they don't know for sure it's going to work out well. And so, uh, th- those would be my thoughts there. Yeah. I mean, it- I'd agree. I think it's a necessary evil, not mm-hmm. to say that the brokers are evil, but it's uh, it's 
something you sort of have to do. Um, but you know, they're taking a big chunk of it. They're, they're not necessarily ingrained with the culture, but, um, if you're starting out, I think you want to try to find ways to stand out away from the brokers. Plus it's gonna be hard to get their attention to Nick's point. Um, yeah. It so takes it's hard to break through. It takes quite the investment today mm-hmm. with the broker groups to get not only for them to, to get their attention, but for them to thoroughly understand your concept. Yeah, right. But I, but I still, I mean, if when somebody comes up to me and tells me they're thinking about buying a franchise, some type of franchise, I, I oftentimes will refer them to mm-hmm. consultants or brokers because, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody's thinking about what they want to buy and they don't, you know, all they're doing is online research. It'd be nice to have somebody kind of walk them through and show them a bunch of different options that meet their criteria, you know, personality wise and investment wise and, you know, those sorts of things. So it's a, you know, I think it's an important piece and they, they, the brokers, especially the ones that do a great job, spend a ton of time investing in lead generation and, and trying to present the right, opportunity for their clients, not just, you know, whatever's going to pay them the most commission. Let, let, let's, I, I want to move on to when you guys kind of got to this tipping point though, because you're saying early, early Omar that, you know, you're selling six franchises, six, seven, you get to 40. And then what happened? Why did it happen? How did it happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it was a combination of the, um, the unit economics, the, the franchisees that were buying the vacation homes and were making money and happy yeah. Um, bringing the franchise development in-house, all of a sudden those two things collide. And then now we have the money to be able to professionalize our team. Um, Nick mentioned our current brand president who came on as a financial controller um, and moved up to now essentially running the company. So it was a perfect storm of a lot of good things happening that all came together. And we follow the, the traction model, the EOS model. That is also another thing I'd have to, to sort of add into the mix all of those things combined is really what was the rocket fuel for the brand. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, it's that, that building of the momentum, you know, the Jim Collins flywheel mm-hmm. when in the early days we're pushing it, it's, it's inching forward ever so slightly. And eventually it starts making a full, you know, rotation, but it's still requiring a ton of effort, ton of energy, uh, time, money, you know, bandwidth. And then eventually it starts to move a little bit faster. And then all of a sudden it's kind of spinning on its own and, and, you know, then as the founder, we can kind of help facilitate the growth, but we're not having to push every single lever. Yeah. yeah. Why do you guys think so many franchisors start out and they, they, they exit? They don't, they don't stay with it. You know, the, the quote that stands in my head is uh, persistence. Um, you know, the movie, The Founder, about the mm-hmm. uh, Ray Kroc, uh, founder of McDonald's, you know, I think it was played by Michael Keaton. He's got this monologue towards the end of the movie where he talks about, you know, the key to success is persistence. And that's obviously the, you know, the original kind of blue chip franchise system that, that we can always, you know, reflect on from a century ago. And uh, I think, you know, franchisors maybe get into it kind of like we did with a little bit of, you know, naive about how easy it's going to be or, you know, hey, my, you know, local business is tough, but if I franchise, I'll be able to collect royalties and it's passive income and, Mm -hmm. you know, but then they get into it and they realize, okay, this is hard. We're not making real money until we get 50 or 100 franchises. Uh, You know, we're having all these headaches and and friction with our our early stage franchisees. And so, uh, you know, maybe they just don't have the, resilience or, or persistence to, to push through. I mean, it's exactly that. I think business is hard. That's <laughs> what it comes down to. It's very, very hard not to overdo the sports analogies, but you know, they're looking at an NBA team for every one of those guys that are on the team. There's mm-hmm. 10,000 others that didn't make it. They might've had the talent. They might've, you know, had everything for them, but they just either weren't in the right place at the right time or had the wrong coach or you know, a million things can, Made can a ba- derail one it. bad decision, one bad decision. Yeah. So at the end of the day, business is hard. Franchising is harder. You have to be focused in first off, I think proving the unit economics. So a lot of folks get ahead of their skis trying to open franchises. The one thing we had going for us is our corporate store was profitable. So we weren't opening franchises without the cash flow of that one corporate store in DC. So you've got to prove it out at least in one market, I'd say even open two or three mm-hmm. markets as corporate entities and then prove it and then start franchising. Don't start franchising until you, unless you have that cash flow. Omar, that can't be overstated enough. I think too many 
franchisors, right? They start out and they, they may have one location. Maybe they sell it. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't recommend that. But then all of a sudden the pressure becomes selling franchises to keep the lights on. We were self-funded, but what funded us was that that location in D.C. was the bank for us. Yeah. I mean, that was right. the, that funded our personal lives. Everything. That funded the franchise entity, franchisor entity until it was sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So how many how many company owned locations did you have in the beginning? Did you have the beginning one? You just had the one. Yeah. Did you open up additional company owned locations? Today we have four. Yeah. Uh, and then we do have a thesis of expanding and opening additional corporate locations in select geographies in the in the next coming years. Okay. Now that we've got some infrastructure to support that. But uh in, in the beginning it was just the one. We had, we put a GM in place to kind of run it and oversee the day to day while we focus a lot of our energy, most of our energy on bringing in new franchises and supporting those new franchises and bringing in the team members to help do that as well. What is your thought thoughts on the balance between company owned locations and franchising and the franchise or franchisee relationship when you start opening company owned locations? Mm. You know, I, th I think that you you, you want to treat the independent or you want to treat the, the corporate locations no differently really than, than a franchise location, as far as the expectation of performance, as far as uh, the unit economics, paying royalties, as far as paying mm -hmm. the royalties out of it. Um, and so you, what you really want to achieve in franchising is aligned interests. And so if there's conflict of interest or in some cases, even perceived conflict of interest, that's something that needs to be kind of addressed and, kind of nipped in the bud or at least evaluated to make sure it doesn't manifest into something bigger. Um, but I think we've leveraged our corporate stores as a net benefit for the franchise system, because if we're wanting to pilot test something, you know, we can pilot test it in a corporate store, prove out the success of it, and then, you know, present the results to the franchise system to say, hey, guys, we spent all this money on these things here. It's working. Now we're going to recommend that you guys do it as well. And it's not going to cost you all the learning curve that we that we invested the R&D that we invested. Mm. So I think that's where the benefit could come through. Yeah, awesome. um, I would agree. I think in the early days, we were very bullish that we didn't want to have any corporate stores, um, aside from the one. Um, but over the years, we've started, I don't want to say made a 180, but we're certainly shifting the thesis that, you know, having a good number of corporate stores is actually a net positive, um, because of all the reasons that Nick mentioned, uh, because, um, you know, that it increases the enterprise value of the brand. It's, um, it's a great way to our building leader story to, to be able to move people into those positions. Um, and it just gives you a, a great sort of control of, of the brand and the business. Yeah, I, I think there, you know, while there's, there's mixed reviews on, on having that dual strategy, I, I do agree with you guys. I think that there is benefit there, especially using it as a potentially a farm system. Mm-hmm of raising talent because especially if you're trying to really you know, promote within i think that, that that offers you the opportunity to do that where people are firsthand working in those territories mm -hmm. strategically i guess deciding on where to put these company on locations and you know that's yeah that's i'll leave it up to you guys we'll, we'll leave it out of the show I, I did the company owned thing a little bit with with i9 sports didn't work out perfectly for us um, but I, I see that it definitely has merit for sure. Yeah, I think the key is, is as you just described, location and personnel. Person. Yeah. You know, who's yeah. going to be running it and where is it based? But in, in your business model and our business model, it's a little bit trickier because we don't have a four-wall retail store right. that people are coming into. And so it's not as simple as just dropping a manager in there to manage those four walls mm -hmm. and the people within it. Uh, you know, in our business, we're sending our people out in a truck with wheels, you know, out into the community, going to people's homes and your business, you're going out to fields and, and, you know, courts and, you know, running leagues. And so uh, there's a little bit more variability in the model where in some cases having somebody who's an owner actually you would think has more skin in the game or more of a vested interest in how it performs. But if we can, which we're attempting to do in our corporate models, you know, create a similar owner like mentality with our own, with our managers, uh, we, we think it could work out. Yeah. The one statistic that drives me crazy that's been around probably since before we all started franchising was, uh, is the 84% of all franchisors never get to a hundred units. Mm. For, so for at least 20 years, this, this, that stat has never, never improved. Mm. Why, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think so many Zors don't get to 100 units? You know, um, I was at a franchise IFA event years ago because uh, he has since passed away. But I, I ran into Fred DeLuca, the founder of mm. Subway. 
And I was telling him about our business. And I think he had seen one of our trucks before and had heard a little bit of our story and was congratulating us. And I think we had like 19 or 20 franchises at the time. And he said to me, uh, he said, listen, you know, most franchisors, they start selling a few franchises and they start spending too much money and they run out of business or run out of money and run out of business. Don't do that. <laughs> and so uh, obviously I took that to heart and said, well, we're starting to sell franchises and look, our balance sheet is growing a little bit. Our bank account is growing a little bit. But, you know, Fred DeLuca said, don't go spend that money yet because <laughs> right. we're not, you know, where we need to be. And so that could be a reason why a lot of franchisors uh, don't make it to 100 is because maybe they get a little bit impatient and, and start overspending ahead of their skis and, uh, and aren't budget-minded uh, along the way to become royalty self-sufficient. Mm. Yeah, I mean, 100 is that magic number. I mean, that's when certainly the economics of the franchisor greatly changed. What prevents it is, again, it's not managing a, a system with 50 to 100 franchises is very different than 10, right? Like when it's the 10, you're talking, you might be, they'll be calling you at eight o'clock at night. You're talking to them. Oh yeah. You're running royalties manually. Yeah, right. when there's 60. Now you need to be able to not just, it's not just the relationship with them. It's putting the system in place. That's going to allow them to be successful. And I think that's a whole other skill set. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a level of sophistication and uh, professionalism that has to be in place for you to be able to support getting to 100 100 yeah i i agree with you guys i think the financial big piece is a big part of it and the pressure maybe of not being well capitalized mm -hmm. of maybe not having a company on location so you're trying to sell franchises and then the other thing is maybe we're selling franchises to not the right people and Absolutely. if we if we yeah. sell too many of those early on, we 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 can't catch up, right? Mm -hmm. Culturally, yeah, that'll come back to bite you. And we made those mistakes. I mean, we some of too. the some of the things that we were warned about was don't sell too much territory, don't don't use the fog a mirror technique, <laughs> where meaning if they yes. can fog a mirror and write a check, then you sell them a franchise. Uh -huh. We were told not to do that, but it's very easy to think you're not supposed to do that. But if you're needing and relying on franchise fees to kind of keep the lights on and mm -hmm. meet payroll, it's hard to sort of bridge that decision uh decision tree but your your point if you get too many of the wrong franchise owners in or you sell too much territory and people can't handle it or develop it it could certainly backfire yeah yeah i think uh, having the team the right team in place because as entrepreneurs and founders we're always going to see the best in people so it's not even that hey mm -hmm. yeah yeah we'd like the money but like someone comes in we think he can make it or we yeah. think she can make it but then having that team in place that's going to say hey hold on like, I don't think this person is going to be a fit and they're going to push back on you uh, mm -hmm. because of X, Y, Z and, and starting to have those conversations and have that conflict within the team. Um, that's going to be what sets you up for success. So getting it's 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 a lot on the founder, I think mm -hmm. the founder needs to be able to step away from zero to twenty five. Yeah, the founder's there. You're having the conversations, you're selling it to everybody. But from twenty five to hundred, now you have to step back and bring in the team that's going to hold you accountable to what you need to be doing and vice versa. Yeah. And we we started evaluating for culture fit and potential, you know, skill set fit. So, you know, could this person be successful in our type of business model and are we going to enjoy working with this person? Mm -hmm. are, are, do they meet our in uh, embody our core values and align with our core values and our vision and purpose? Yeah, I got I got caught up in liking people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I really like this guy. Like I want him to win. And well, in our business, you know, he likes sports. And of right. course I came to find out very quickly that whether you know anything about sports has right. has nothing to do with if you're gonna be a successful entrepreneur, right? Right. Uh, same thing with moving. Mm -hmm. We've all moved before. It doesn't mean I'm an expert in, in the moving business. Yeah, the good news, nobody likes moving. So it's like, <laughs> exactly. you just get, the, get rid of that right away. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's, you know, you meet people, you're like, I like them. I, I like them. They're, they're energetic. Whatever it is, right. you, you, you know, there's been countless conversations we've had where like, that guy can't make it. Nobody can. Sometimes and, that person And doesn't. then <laughs> sometimes he doesn't make it, right? right? Yeah. And we're like, wow, I really thought. But we don't know what's going on in their personal lives, right? right? This thing's sure. going on. One other thing, I have to go back to the territory. I love that. Nick, you yeah. mentioned about giving away too much territory. To this day, when I read an FDD, if I see a franchisor giving away a lot of territory, by the way, I want to preface by saying I did this, so I know I made the same mistake. Basically, how I read it as it's, a confidence issue 
is my is my franchisee going to make it if I give them enough real estate? Mm-hmm. They have enough runway to make mistakes, mm-hmm. and I did that. I gave away enormous territories because I thought, oh my god, how many basketball courts there mm-hmm. are, and what if that school says no, and that city says no, and that city says no? Like I gave way too much land away, and then as of course as the years went on, I shrunk it down. It was like franchisees were succeeding. My confidence level went up, territory size got smaller. Did you guys do any of the same thing? Yeah, 100%, probably identical evolution that you just <laughs> described. It's way too much territory in the beginning. Rubber stamp approved people's request to expand. Right. And now we've got a very disciplined uh, expansion criteria that's objective, not subjective. And we've taken Omar and I's emotions out of it. And we let the team view the metrics and, and people's criteria for expansion, but we don't sell more than one zone out of the gates. That's good. So somebody has got to prove themselves in one zone before they can add additional. And, uh, yeah, I think there's that confidence level that the franchisor evolves to where the model starts to prove out. You get this critical mass where you're not reliant on, you know, the next sale to keep right. the lights on. Right. When I- <laughs> My franchisee in Honolulu, the reason why he has all of Honolulu is because back in 2005, I said, nobody's ever going to call us again from Hawaii. Just give them the whole thing. Sell them the whole thing. <laughs> why did I do that? Yeah. And he's been a huge success, of course. And uh, But that was the, the short-sightedness of an early franchisor. You just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, yeah. you can't see that far in the future. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have no idea. I've always wondered how you two guys have worked together though. Like how have you divvied up the responsibilities and more importantly, how have you maybe put strategic differences aside and came and come together to grow this beast? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you hear all the stories of business partnerships that don't work. I think we were lucky in the fact that our personalities are similar, but different. So mm-hmm. there was just some luck in the fact that we were friends had similar values, vision, uh, but we also had skill sets that were different. Um, in the early days, it was, you know, we divided based on what we probably liked doing, what we were better at. So I might do a little more of the digital marketing and Nick was more sales and finance, you know, in the numbers and helping with the franchise sales. But the real, I think, shift was the entrepreneurial operating system uh, traction where it, it was sort of the second book that spoke to us. E-Myth was the first one where mm-hmm. it was like, oh, wow, this really is speaking to us. And then the EOS book, Nick re- recommended it to me. And same thing, I read it. I was like, wow, this is this is us. And, you know, it talks about the visionary seat and the integrator seat. And I think we realized at that moment that neither of us were an integrator or wanted to be an integrator. Um, so that was the light bulb moment that we needed to find one. Um, and so now today, I'd say we sit in the co-visionary seat with our integrator being Roman, who's our brand president, and um, we follow their meeting cadence, and we sit through these what we call the level ten same page meeting with uh, where we come to the table with a laundry list of items, and then sort of talk them through. And Roman is our uh, sometimes he's got to be on the uh, uh, play like judge or, mm-hmm. or uh, marriage counselor <laughs> or, or something like that, but um, we get through it kind of using the model, I think. Yeah, I mean, Omar hit it on the head. I think our friendship was a great foundation where we, you know, you hear the every high school boy's dream is like going to business with like his best buddy. Absolutely. And uh, but then to Omar's point, a lot of times they they fall apart or they, they, they their friendship suffers as a result. And so I think our vision values have always been in alignment. Uh, neither one of us really ever takes things personally. So, mm-hmm. you know, we would have arguments and then just kind of keep it moving and get right back to get right back to business and friendship. Like there was never any resentment or, or, uh, you know, distrust or anything along those lines. So I think just like any relationship, you know, communication is important, appreciation of what each other brings to the table and, and, you know, kind of also acceptance of each other's faults and flaws, right? Mm-hmm. Like I probably drive Omar crazy with some of my obsessive compulsiveness. You know, Omar would drive me crazy in the early days with some of his kind of laid back things are going to just fall into place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then we would yell at each other about it, but then we would just kind of get right back to business. And I, the best part I think about the partnership has been able to really celebrate the wins, you know, with somebody that's a true friend, mm-hmm. but then also be able to kind of have somebody to, you know, hunker down with things as things are tough. I mean, COVID was tough. This climate we're in right now is, you know, we don't know what it's going to uh, shake out as. And, mm-hmm. and so having somebody that uh, you're kind of in the corner with and, yeah. uh, you know, been through ups and downs together with is, uh, is beneficial for us as well. That's beautiful. I, yeah, I tell that to pretty much any business owner I speak to that's a single founder. I tell them you're in the most difficult 
position because it's just you by yourself. And like, yes, you hear the horror stories of business partnerships, but like you don't have anyone to talk to at the end of the day. You don't have someone pushing you to make that decision that you've been putting off. Um, you don't have that person to confide in. So you're literally on this mountain by yourself. True. Um, so like, that's a tough position. Yeah. And you know, it's funny is I, I wish we could go back and read our text uh, okay. string from like the early <laughs> days and up until now, because there's, you know, stuff pops into one of our head and we just will fire off a text to the other person, you know, might be a stress text. It might be an idea text. Uh, sometimes we're arguing with each other. We forget that Roman, our brand president is on the, is on the text <laughs> string as well. <laughs> so he's just kind of sitting, you know, waiting for us right. to, to settle down so we can, you know, actually talk about something productive. But, right. uh, but yeah, again, it gets back to, I think our comfortability with, with, each other as friends that none of it you know none of the negativity ever bothers us enough to to make an impact and you know all the upside is is you know still stuff we get excited about that's cool i mean you guys solved the lonely at the top syndrome yeah, yeah. i would imagine too back at least the early days when you guys were a smaller operation it had to be like when we had you know with our kids our kids know to go to mom or yeah. dad for certain <laughs> things. I bet your staff knew, oh no, oh, yeah. you go to Omar for that. Do not go to Nick and vice <laughs> yeah. versa. Did you not, did you, did you feel oh, being yeah. played against one another sometimes? hundred <laughs> percent. Like go ask mom, go ask dad. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that, that definitely happened for yeah. sure. Or sometimes they would come to me and be like, Omar said this was cool. And yeah. I'd be like, Omar said that. And they hadn't even, <laughs> haven't even yeah. talked to Omar yeah. yet. Oh, uh, well, I imagine so. So what's like the, um, what's the direction for you guys now moving forward? What's, uh, I'd love to hear more, hear more about like the vision of where you want to take the company and mm -hmm. how big is big? Yeah. So, you know, I think the nice thing that we're at a point, an inflection, a new inflection point for our business, quite frankly, where we are not coming from a place of scarcity where like, I think when we first started the business, we always had this dream of being a hundred million dollar system wide business and, you know, being a profitable enterprise and, and, you know, winning these awards and accolades. And so like, you know, now we can look back and say, well, we've done all those things we set out to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was hard, but now we're at a place of kind of abundance where we can say, you know, what else can we achieve to maximize our potential as a business, as a brand, as professionals and leaders and, uh, and make a positive impact along that, along the way in doing so. And so, uh, you know, we're close to 300 million system wide in revenue today. And, you know, we, we don't see any reason why we can't 10 X that, you know, in the next 10 years. And, uh, we don't know exactly how there'll be some other business acquisitions perhaps at some point or, uh, extensions of, of the current brand offering. Uh, but we think in doing so we can make 10 X more impact than we've made up to this point as well. Mm. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I think it's, there's a lot of meat on the bone. Um, moving hauling is a $20 billion industry. So there's, there's still a lot of opportunity to go deeper in each one of our territories and certainly add more franchises. So uh, pretty much what he said. Yeah. You know what, what I, what I really heard you say though, Nick, is that something happened with the mindset with you guys. You changed from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And that really didn't happen. We all know that did not happen because you made, you brought in a lot more revenue because if you have a scarcity mindset, that's who you are, right? Mm -hmm. I've been around people, who, you know, multimillionaires who have still the scarcity mindset. What do you think changed for you guys? Like, how did you make this shift? Because that's really why the company exploded right yeah i mean i think it's a combination of things you know we started we got married we started having kids so life events happened we matured a little bit where it was no longer about trying to have 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 it was more so about you know what more can we produce for others and 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 you know achieve to maximize our potential so it kind of took the edge off a little bit where now we weren't playing to not lose we were playing to win ah. and uh you can you can operate much more free that way you know and it's whether it's like playing sports without the the mental pressure you see them the, the the successful athletes in the flow of things and so um you know i think that that shift was uh was gradual also as we started to achieve i saw people that had more than us that you know still had that scarcity mindset like you said that yeah. were just you know never fulfilled never satisfied didn't enjoy what they were doing it seemed like there was just something else driving them and i didn't want that to be me i've realized you know there's only so much runway left, so let's make mm -hmm. it a, a very fulfilling one. Who talks about the infinite game? It's uh, Simon, Simon Sinek. Sinek. Simon yeah. Sinek. So yes. it's like that really sp spoke to me is that we're playing the infinite game with college hunks. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't I, – I, when, when we're long gone, I hope that those orange-green trucks are still driving around and there's people 
you know, sitting in the driver's seats that are becoming leaders, right? And so it's that legacy of a brand uh, that will hopefully stand the test of time. And so I always want to be involved with College Hunks. I know Nick does too, um, for as long as we possibly can or as long as they'll have us. Uh, so it's just that commitment to the infinite mm -hmm. of, of the brand. You guys realized that the business was not about you anymore. Mm -hmm. Because anybody that says that you want these trucks to be around long after you and it's about legacy means it's, they realize it's bigger than them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we have an opportunity. We have made a significant impact in the lives of our franchise owners, team members, and the communities we serve. But we have, you know, the bigger we get, the, the broader the impact, the, mm -hmm. the greater the reach. And, you know, our company purpose, we say, is move the world. And it's a double meaning that, that Omar came up with, which is not just about moving people physically, but moving people emotionally with our interactions, with the things that we're able to uh, uh, perform for them. And so the the better our business can become, the better we can become as leaders, the better our people can become. It's this virtuous cycle that, uh, you know, makes things better. And, you know, it's, it always sounds sometimes a little bit cliche to say that, but it's, it's true. One of the things that I always, you know, uh, emphasize to our team is when we, when they see these orange and green trucks on the road, when people see these orange and green trucks, we want them to think, you know, Hey, for that moment, everything is okay. Like that's, that's, that brand represents that, which is positive. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of negativity right now going on. So we want to be sort of the, the shining light uh, of, of positivity that, uh, you know, that, as much as we can, as best we can. Yeah, I get. Would you say that you're you're ultimately selling security and comfort? Absolutely, trust and care. That is that. Yeah, that's core values. It. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, it's one of the it's the emotions that people that we want to elicit in our team members and our clients. Most importantly, uh, anytime you choose a home service business, it's usually about trust. You're you're calling nine one one, right? You're got mold. You're calling nine one one mold. If you've got junk, you're calling nine one one junk. Anytime you invite strangers into your home, mm -hmm. that's like an emergency. So our job is to relieve them of their stress and, and rescue them, for lack of a better word. So, yeah, it's definitely about that. What's been the biggest surprise that you guys have seen in franchising? Maybe not biggest surprise, but something that it's been maybe a pleasant surprise is uh, how supportive the franchise community is. Uh, and, you know, there's now much more support out there for emerging franchises and there's things like springboard for, for, you mm -hmm. know, early stage franchises and uh, you know, things like this podcast and, and your book that, you know, helps, you know, educate franchises, big, small, new, old on, on how to, you know, improve the, the model for, for its greatest impact. And uh, you know, it creates jobs, it creates uh, economic impact, community impact, um, and we've seen firsthand how it impacts our franchise owners and their team members. But uh, I think it's a very supportive community and, and you know, a very unique model uh, that, that hopefully can continue to flourish for, for a long time. What's also interesting is that as much as the world has changed, franchising has stayed somewhat the same. You know, it's the same principles, unit economics, franchise development, systems, people. Probably the thing that surprises me is that there hasn't been as much change that, you know, what's worked. 30, 40 years ago, still works today. Yeah, that was one of the big takeaways for me at Springboard. I know, Omar, mm -hmm. I saw you there, is that I came away from Springboard with the, wow, as much as things have changed, the foundation of franchising is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot more resources, a lot more technology. There's a lot more access than we had when we were starting out. But at the end of the day, it's still the same. Mm -hmm. It comes down to unit economics, yeah, right? And absolutely. having the right culture, having the right team, all those things. Cool. Um, if if somebody was interested in in being part of your system, how can they find out about you guys? Uh, our website, collegehunkshaulingjunk.com. Um, they can check us out or uh, learn about our franchise opportunities. That's probably the best way. Social yeah. media, we're on Instagram. At College Hunks is our uh, company Instagram handle, so... Nice. All right. Excellent. I, I've got to finish with one last thing and I call it the tip jar and this entire podcast has mm -hmm. been one big tip jar, mm -hmm. but let's say we have an entrepreneur who's looking to franchise their concept. Omar, what is the one Man. piece of advice you're going to give him or her before they get started? The one piece of advice, I mean, you've got to have a vision. You've got mm -hmm. to put your vision on paper. So you have to be able to communicate that vision believe in that vision, express it 
to that first team member or to your wife or spouse or um, so it's got to start with the vision. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. Nick, what do you got? Yeah. So to piggyback on Omar's, he and I just recently went and saw a Dave Chappelle stand-up uh, show here in Tampa. And, yes. and one of his uh, words of wisdom he gave the audience when he wasn't telling jokes was that uh, uh, the guy with the loudest dream usually has it come true. And so I think that kind of echoes Omar's point about having a, a vision and being able to share it loudly and, and clearly with, with everybody around you, especially your early hires, your early franchise owners to want to be a part of that journey. Uh, but then uh, I would say be patient uh, for results and have urgency of effort. Those, that's what I always preach to entrepreneurs, but franchising is no different. Uh, the results are going to come with time, mm-hmm. but the effort has to be ur- constantly, urgently you know, uh, reinforced. And none of it happens overnight. We describe ourselves as a 20-year overnight success, uh, but it's the compounding effect of the, the effort and the execution over time that ultimately produces the, uh, the breakthrough results. Guys, you are such an inspiration to franchisors and just entrepreneurs alike. And I just, um, it's amazing. I love seeing what you guys have done. You guys have done over the years. It's just incredible. Likewise. I just wish you all continued success. It's great seeing you both. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, see you around. Yeah, thank Thank you you. for the mentorship over the years. (laughs) Oh, thank Thank you. you. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning into the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. For additional insights, guest applications, and to stay connected, visit us at efbpodcast.com. The Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Emerging Franchise Brands, its host Frank Fumi, or Emerging Franchise Group, LLC. Any discussed franchise or investment opportunity requires thorough investigation, obtaining proper disclosure documents, and expert consultation before making any investment decisions. The podcast and its host do not offer professional advice or endorsements, and they hold no responsibility for actions, representations, accuracy, or consequential damages related to the podcast content.